wrap up our conversations. You can find your seats. Just want to add my welcome. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Chad. And I have a, just the privilege of serving as a pastor here. It is great to see you all. Thank you for just loving each other so well. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to the book of Numbers. We're going to be looking at chapter 13 and chapter 14 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardwound one somewhere around you. And this morning's passage can be found on page 121 and 122. I'm so excited to be here, so excited to see you all. Um, God is extremely kind to us. I uh, had just the joy of going on vacation last week, and uh, just to come back and see you all brings me uh, just a ton of joy. Uh, we had a wonderful time away, and just want to publicly thank uh, both Aaron and Brittany. They just did an outstanding job, I think, just casting vision for the next generation, and just that God is always at work, and we are just so excited for what God is doing um, here and what he will continue to do um, in the future. But while I was on vacation, I, I was finishing, uh, or almost finishing, a podcast called Slow Burn. So I don't know, any, anybody listened to that podcast before? So this is, a, yeah, it's probably, so if you like history, if you like politics at all, this is a good one for you. Slow Burn. Um, is about the Watergate scandal from the 1970s. So if you're not familiar with Watergate, probably most of us are vaguely familiar. Watergate ended with the resignation of President Nixon in 1974. And it really was one of the greatest cases of political espionage that this country has ever seen. And what's amazing about this uh, podcast is it kind of goes in real time and it allows you to uncover the news footage as it's kind of revealed in the country. So um, Richard Nixon resigned in 1974, um, but really all of this drama began at the beginning of 1972 when um, just high ups in the Republican Party began to plot together how they could spy on the Democratic Party. And so they began wiretapping phones and listening in and they had a, a really the, the crux of the matter was a, a bundled burglary attempt where there were five individuals that were arrested um, as they broke into the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Hotel. And um, this story of political espionage had devastating consequences for the country, right? The country was left without a president. Dozens of people were fined and imprisoned, and really it was at that moment that uh, public confidence in politicians as a whole began to decline, and it really hasn't recovered to this day. And so this was, yeah, just a a, a case of espionage that had real devastating consequences. As we look at the book of Numbers this morning, we're going to look at Numbers 13 and 14. We're going to see another case of espionage that also leads to devastating consequences for the people of God. What we're going to look at is an account of where the people of God are on the precipice of everything that God has promised to them in the promised land. And God says, I want you to send out 12 of your very best. I want you to send them in to kind of check out the land and make sure um, just that you are aware of all that I'm giving to you. And 
the nation sends 12 of its best. But what happens is, as they are on the precipice of all that God has promised to them, they begin to be very afraid and they want to turn back and they want to run. And so what we're going to talk about today is learning from their example, but not just their example, because what this passage ultimately points us to is not just a moral example, but it gives us a stunning picture of Jesus, who is our champion, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So we're going to look at how do we move from fear to faith, and we're going to do that as we look at Numbers 13 and 14. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me? And the reason that we stand is because these are the most important words that will be spoken here today. There's a difference between what I say and what God says, so we want to honor that. All right, I'm going to begin chapter 13, verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to skip around in chapter 13. Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. That's a key phrase. From each of their tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. And then there is a long list of names that I will spare you pronouncing, and we will skip down to verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and he said to them, Go up into the Negev, and go up into the hill country, and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. And this is their report, verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Haran at Kadesh. They brought back the word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and all the other ites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants And all the people we saw in it are of great height. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Oh, Lord, we so love you. 
So thank you that you don't deal with us primarily according to our fears, but you deal with us on the basis of Jesus. I pray that his work on our behalf would become more precious in our eyes as we just look at the reality of fear and how it works in our lives. And I pray that the result is that you would cultivate faith in our hearts, that we would see you and that we would trust you and that we would live in the good of your promises because you are a promise-keeping God. To do that, we need you to send your spirit. It's just not natural for us to believe and to trust you. We need supernatural help which you are so gracious to supply. So do that and do more than we can ask or imagine or think. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at Numbers 13 and 14, uh, before we just jump in, um, I want to give you just a couple of reasons why we're looking at the Old Testament. We spent most of the summer in the Old Testament. We've got another series coming up in the Old Testament. And, I mean, there can be some confusion about how to really benefit from the Old Testament. And so one of the reasons that we read the Old Testament, Romans 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 4, says that all of the things that happened in the Old Testament, they are written down for our instruction. Like, it's helpful to see how someone else walks through situations so that we can learn from both their successes and their failures. And we've seen that. And you'll see this in this passage. So when you look at the Old Testament and you're reading it on your own, one of the things you want to ask yourself is, what is this actually teaching us? What does God have for us in the midst of that? But also in Romans 15 verse 4, it says that these things are written for our instruction, but they're also written to give us hope. And hope is not just a feeling that we have. Hope is a person and hope is Jesus. And so all of the Old Testament, when Jesus was talking about it, said that all of the scriptures are pointing to me, whether it's the Psalms or whether it's the law, whether it's the historical books. All of them point to me. And so there's a unique picture of Jesus that every passage in the Old Testament points to. And that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to look at how Jesus, through this story in Numbers 13 and 14, helps us overcome our fear and begin to walk in faith. So we want to keep our eyes, not just for some moral lesson, but we want to keep our eyes on our Savior. But really, Numbers 13 and 14 is a contrast between walking in fear and really trusting God for the promises that he has given us in our lives. And so um, the stakes are extremely high. My first point is that God wants uh, to remind us that we are people of promise. The people of Israel are on the end of a long journey. God made promises to Abraham. You can read about it in the book of Genesis. And those promises were passed down to Isaac and to Jacob and hit a major snag when the people of Israel were um, really brought under the slavery of the Egyptians and they lived there for 400 years. At the end of that, God raised up a leader, Moses, and he began to deliver his people and they are on the edge and on the precipice of all that God has for them. And that's the story that we are picking up on. So I want you to imagine this. We all have dreams. We all have expectations. We all have things that we believe that God has purposed for us. I want you to think about today as God is inviting you to peer over into all the things that he has called you to. See, we are people of promise, 
And we, as the people of God, derive our identity not from what the culture says, right? Not from what we primarily think about ourselves, but we derive our identity from who God is. So our identity, as the people of God, God is revealed in this passage as a promise giver and a promise keeper. So 400 years of promises are coming true at this very moment for the people of God. So what that makes us is people of destiny, right? That we, as the people of God, he has created each of us for good works to walk in, that he's prepared for us in advance, right? And all of us are on different parts of the journey towards our destiny, right? Some in this room, I I guarantee you, you know exactly why you are on the planet. You have come alive to the reason that he has made you. And I pray that this morning would kind of be some gospel gasoline on what he's already called you to do. But then there's going to be others, you know, where this is a totally new thing and you're just trying to fill it out. And, And I pray that God would make it very clear And just begin to affirm to you why he has created you, why he has made you, why you're on the planet. And then there's others that are on the journey where I think you know what it is, but you've hit some snags along the way. And discouragement and disillusionment have settled in. I believe God wants to kind of move you from a place of just being wounded to a place of wholeness and healing so that you can walk in all the promises that he has given to you. The truth is that every person in this room is made in the image of God. Every person in this room, both in reality and in some ways in our practice, carry the stamp of the creator of the universe. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, not only are you made in the image of God, he's invested in you his very spirit. And God is not in the business of wasting his image and wasting his spirit. So he is more committed to fulfilling his promises for your life than we are to actually walking in them. And that's part of the reason that Numbers 13 and 14 are in the Bible. This room is filled with just the reality of destiny. There are people in this room that are absolutely called to change the destiny of other people. God has adoption for you in your future. There are people in this room that are called to leave this culture and go to other cultures to proclaim the gospel and live out the gospel story in another place. There are churches that are called to be planted out of this place. There are church planters. There are people that are meant to be a part of a church planting team that are meant to Start businesses and come alongside people so that the gospel grows and advances. There are people in this room that are meant to start nonprofits and to start businesses for the glory of God. And if you're here and you're just starting college, this is a wonderful Sunday for you to be here because God wants to speak destiny over your life. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, and he has a destiny for you. But the reality is, as we look at Numbers 13 and 14, none of those promises come to us unopposed, right? Oftentimes, what looks like the promises of God manifests itself as a problem that we have to overcome. That's what's going on in Numbers 13 and 14. So this week, I mean, just returning from vacation, I was in my office, and uh, I have it on the front row. I pulled off a journal from 
in the year 2010, 2011, that my wife gave to me as a Christmas gift. And I just flipped through it, and I was absolutely just blown away, first primarily of the things that God was faithful to impart to me and speak to me. Um, not all those things were right, but, I mean, there was just, there's things that are written in that journal um, that are absolutely rock solid, a part of who I am and really who we are as a church. And I'm absolutely grateful for that. But then the flip side of it is, like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an optimist. I, I mean, I'm an idealist at heart. And so I'm reading those things. And I had no idea how difficult some of those things actually would be to live out, right? So that's my story. That's the story in Numbers 13 and 14. And as you consider the reason that God has made you, I mean, the reality is you will face difficulty. And so in those moments, we have a real opportunity um, to trust God or to respond in fear. So God's promises are real and they're certain, but they certainly are not unopposed. So that brings me to um, just uh, my next point. It's the apparent wisdom of fear. The apparent wisdom of fear. So listen to God and how he speaks to the people, how it's already done. Verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan. And this should be the big underline, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So God was sending out these representatives of each tribe so that they could see the goodness of the land. Like he wanted them to know what they were going to inherit. And so these guys are not average Joes. I mean, these are not guys that they just picked off the street. Every one of them was a leader in the tribe of Israel. I kind of picture them as Navy SEAL types because they literally over 40 days traveled 500 miles over all kinds of different terrain. Um, And... The strange thing is 10 of the 12 of them came back and they were absolutely terrified of what laid before them. And before, you know, we're too difficult on these guys. I mean, all of us, when we first encounter difficulty, right, we can all have these ideas of things that we believe that God has made us for and things that he's called us to. But when we encounter difficulty, the first thing that we think or we believe is that God's not in this, right? We must be going down the wrong path. Well, that was certainly the experience of the Israelites. Um, And what's so powerful about fear um, is the apparent wisdom that it can masquerade itself as. Fear sounds plausible. It sounds like it makes sense. I mean, They were leaning on what they saw, what they knew in their heads, what they had experienced. The cities are large. The people are giants, right? The cities have large walls around them. And compared to all these people, we look like grasshoppers, right? So what they saw in their eyes was bigger than who they thought God was. But God started out this chapter by saying, this is the land that I am giving to you. So fear can look like a lot of different things. Fear sometimes comes out not just hiding in a corner, you know, weeping, you know, collapsing in a puddle. Sometimes fear looks a lot like anger, you know. Fearful people oftentimes are angry people. 
And I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I remember being a new dad, and we had a lot of kids really fast, so um, we really <laughs> couldn't keep track of all of them. But I remember every time that I would go into a parking lot, and they were all piling out of the minivan and trying to wrangle them all and making sure they were all holding my hand. And the first thing that they do when the door is open is they want to run out, you know, and I would get, I mean, that would be the most angry that I would get. And it wasn't just because, you know, like I wasn't getting my way. It was because I was afraid, right? So fear can masquerade itself as anger. Also, fear can look like I'm not going to try something if I'm not going to be the best, you know, you can have this idea that God maybe has called you something, but because, you know, you're like at this level and you think God wants you to be at this level, it's hard to start the journey. But what faith presupposes is that we're needy people, right? That we don't have all the resources in ourselves, right? We don't, we need strength that comes from outside of us. And that's exactly what God provides for us. So it can look like a, a prideful Cynicism. All of us really naturally rebel against the idea of being needy. But faith means just becoming comfortable with that we are people that need God. You know, we're never going to outgrow that as the people of God. So, but in this passage, what the 12 spies, 10 of the 12, lean on is their own experiences, right? So fear looks like wisdom. Fear looks like caution, right? We, we all have a certain skill set that God's given us. We all have gifts and we all have ways that we experience the world. And it's very easy to lean on those things and to lean on our perspective than listen to the voice of God and respond to who he is, right? You know, so if you are really good with money, chances are like you can put more faith in your ability to manage money than you are to trust God to generously give it away, right? That's just how some of those things work. It doesn't have to be money. I mean, it could be being a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a student. Any of those things, we can be more tempted to believe and to trust in our own experience. And that's exactly what they do. But the reality is there is a real enemy that opposes all of the plans and purposes of God for our lives. And one of his greatest tricks is to get us to trust, not just in anything, but to trust in ourselves. Ed Welch says this, he says, fear feeds on lies we already believe about God and ourselves. So I believe that that God has something unique and special for people that have experienced pain because you stepped out in faith, right? The reality is a lot of us exhaust ourselves trying to do God's job, right? We think it's our job to manage the future and to think about all the things that could go wrong, to manage and write our own story. And the truth of the matter is I wish it was different, but God doesn't promise us that we will not experience pain along the way, but he does promise that he will comfort us in the midst of our pain right? So as we step out in faith, and if you've already stepped out in faith and it's been difficult, I believe that God wants to just encourage you that you're not supposed to stop short of redemption. 
oftentimes the way that God redeems our stories is not by giving us a different path, but by taking us right back down the same path that was difficult for us and seeing himself faithful over and over again. Right? See, and what happens in the midst of this passage is these folks are so afraid. I mean, God's promises are right here. There's real enemies right here. And, and they honestly would rather give themselves as slaves back to the nation of Egypt than to go forward in the plan and the purposes of God. That's exactly what fear does. There is a war for the very fabric of our souls between fear and faith. And when we give in to fear, sometimes we can think that it just affects us, but really fear affects everyone around us. Look at Numbers 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. And that's why it's important that we look at this together. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we would have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So fear is not just contained. Like it spreads like wildfire. What fear does in this moment is cause, causes them not just to mistrust God, but to start to charge and to blame God. Like, God, you've brought us to this place to die, right? So fear wants to attack the very character and the nature of God. And the reality of fear, we don't think about it. We think about it as protection, but really fear is voluntary slavery, right? They're saying, I would rather go back to Egypt and live as a slave than to go forward in the things that God's called me to do. So what we do when we are afraid of something and we're kind of paralyzed in the moment is we're giving it more power than who we are and we're certainly giving it more power than who God is in that moment. So fear is a form of voluntary slavery. This bad report leads to an entire generation minus Caleb and Joshua from entering the promised land. So fear is a real enemy. It's something that we are always going to battle. The truth is fear will never stop. But what this passage is more about is an invitation to trust God. But for the people of God, fear does not have to be the end of the story. It is a daily reality and it is a daily battle. But the reality is we can grow as people of faith. Which brings me to my final point. In a world of doubt, people of faith provide stability and reveal true hope. So against the backdrop of fear and indecision and a whole nation willing to forfeit its inheritance with God, Joshua and Caleb step to the front and they begin to give us a picture of what does it mean to trust God to be who he says he is. Look at chapter 13, verse 30. 
I love this verse. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. I love Caleb in this moment. I mean, everyone else around him is afraid. I mean, he's basically interrupting their bad report and say, hey, I want to tell you a different story. I want to tell you the story of the faithfulness of God. Because who God is who he says he is, we are well able to overcome it. I don't care how big the cities are. I don't care how tall the people are. I know how big my God is, right? And I... I want to see the world like that. And I'm praying for us as a church that we would be able to recognize fear for the slavery that it is and begin as the people of God to fix our hope on who God is, right? Because the truth is that God has promised these promises that are true and they are precious and they are real. It says that there is no weapon that is formed against us that will prosper. That's what the word says. We're going to stand on that and we believe that. Even though we have a real enemy that lives inside of us, even though that we have enemies that are outside of us, the truth is that God is bigger, right? Also have the reality that as we seek to take the gospel, right, into Jonesboro and we see renewal happen and we're seeing it happen before our very eyes. I want you all, if you've been here for a while, I want you to turn around and I want you to look. God is at work here, Right? God is working. The gates of hell will not stop the advance of the gospel. Right? He has promised that he will build his church. We can live in the good of these very precious promises. So when we move from fear to faith, our perspective can't be colored by our circumstances. In chapter 14, verse 24, God is commending Caleb and says he has a different kind of spirit. Right? So, um, in our sports academy, one of the theme verses was God's not given us a spirit of timidity or fear. So, we're very familiar with the spirit of fear. What this passage reveals is a spirit of faith, a spirit that rises up despite what they see and trusts in God. And God wants to do that for us. So, a couple of just words about faith, because this is really important. People misunderstand this often. I can think about this in the wrong way. Faith locks onto its object, not itself, right? So f- we don't put faith in faith, right? So oftentimes we can become paralyzed by looking inside. Do I really have enough faith and examining the quality of our faith? As soon as you begin to examine the quality of your faith, you know what's going to happen? It disappears, right? Because then we're looking inward. But what this passage invites us to do is to not look to our feelings, not look to what we think should happen, not our own experiences. God wants us to fix our eyes on him. And as we look and as we see him and as we see the author and the perfecter of our faith, faith grows, right? Faith grows not by just mustering up willpower. Faith grows by seeing God and seeing his provision in and through Jesus. So faith locks onto its object, not to itself. And the good news is faith can grow. Like there is a a legitimate opportunity for us as the people of God, not to do this perfectly, but to grow and expect God to be who he says he is. If all this passage is for us is a moral example to follow, um, we're in trouble, right? We need faith grows as it looks outside of itself. Caleb is kind of a forerunner in a picture that points us to Jesus. Jesus 
is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus' faith for those that place their faith in him becomes their record. This is the good news of the gospel, right? So you can be here. You could, we've all been the people in Numbers 13 and 14 that are afraid of our future. But what God does is not send them a pep talk. He sends a savior. He sends his very son into the world. So Jesus perfectly trusted God all the way to the cross. And so on the cross, he died for fearful people. On the cross, he defeated everything that you are afraid of. It will not have the final say in your life. He defeated fear on the cross. And God raised him up from the dead. And what's the beautiful thing about him being alive right now is that when God looks at our record of faith or our record of unfaith, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus who perfectly trusted God all the way to the end. So that frees us to take radical steps of obedience and faith regardless of what the outcome is because Jesus is our record. Oftentimes we think that the opposite of fear is faith. But the New Testament says it like this, 1 John 4, 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So fearful people, right? It's not primarily about mustering up faith. It's about receiving the love of the Savior that came into the world to die for you. And as you experience his love, it frees you to trust and it frees you to obey. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus despite whatever we are walking through. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band up to join me. I'm going to close by reading a, this really is a picture um, that was originally shared at a church in London. And it was written in response to a passage like this. And it was written for people that are literally facing all the things that and beginning to see the fruition of the things that God has promised to them all their lives. And at that moment, we have a, a, a critical moment um, to respond to and believe and to trust God. So um, you don't have to, but I might invite you just to close your eyes. And I want you to think about if God has spoken anything to you in this service about why you're on the planet. I want you to think about this and think about this vision and pray that he would minister to you through it. They said, threshold moments are equally beautiful and terrifying. They have the capacity to make or to break the vision. As you stand on the cusp of everything that you've dared hope for, you survey the land that now lies before you. Your eyes tracing the intricate shapes that settle on the horizon, it looks too good to imagine. This is what has been stirring for so long. This has been the cry of your heart for years, hidden deep down. But here it is, the first glimpse of dream turns reality. Within reach, right before your very eyes, so nearly there as you stand there at the threshold of everything that you've dreamed about, 
that cocktail of excitement and fear rising in equal measure, another voice kicks in. The one that gently tells you to take a step back from the threshold. It whispers to you that passing through the door will have its cost and it's too good to be true. Or even worse, that what lies in front of you is all a mirage and you would be foolish to walk through. That it will disappear as soon as you enter and it's better to survey the land from a doorway and just to distance yourself just in case. To stand there just watching. It's better to let a dream die now before sacrifices are made and bridges are burned and there's no safe way back. Threshold moments have power and I believe that's where we are as a church. Many people see them as just the end of a long journey. They finally glimpse with their hearts what they've longed for, but they stop exhausted. They find themselves settling in at the doorway of all they've hoped without actually crossing through and taking hold of it. Tired and exhausted, they find contentment in their reasoning that they've made it this far. They can see it from a distance, but the truth is these threshold moments, and this all the promises that God has for you, just the start of the adventure. They are only the beginning. So step in, take courage, and move forward. You have been called for such a moment as this. Father, we position ourselves as your people, as listening people. We believe with all of our hearts that we are people of destiny that you have a future for us that you hold. We don't know what it holds, but we know you hold our future. I pray that right now that you would break the spirit of fear and you would replace it with a spirit of faith that locks on to the object, Jesus Christ. And I pray that it would help us to step out in our vocations where you have called us, that we would bloom where our feet are planted, that you would give us bold initiatives to take the kingdom forward for your glory pray for everyone that's starting a new season, that you would give them fresh faith, that you would overcome the lies of fear and the lies of the enemy, that you would allow them to step forward in faith and trust you to do more than we can ask or imagine or even think, because that's who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.